A reading from God's Word. Psalm 78, verses 32 through 38. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths, and they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity, and he did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often, and he did not stir up all his wrath. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will throat. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. What I would encourage you with this morning as we look at these two readings is that God uses the preaching of the word of God to save sinners. That that is the chief means by which people who do not know who Jesus Christ is are able to have their eyes open. God sovereignly uses the preaching of the word to transform sinners. And so to that end, my message this morning is entitled Preaching the Power of God. Not that I am preaching God's power, but preaching is the power of God to transform sinners. And that may sound like quite a statement, and I indeed, I do not know how to understand the passage we just read other than that preaching is the means by which God transforms sinners. So to that end, this is my theme and aim, that through the preaching of the word of the cross, which is the glad news that Christ was crucified in the place of sinners, God saves sinners. And therefore, I want to look at three aspects. First, in examining our psalm, briefly highlighting the history of Israel, 
Then moving on to Paul's debate with the Corinthians as he demonstrates the lack of wisdom in what is called wisdom by the world. And then finally, what it means to boast in the Lord Jesus Christ as Paul reminds his hearers of exactly who they were before the cross, the word of the cross was preached to them. In God's power, as it was displayed to Israel, he fulfilled every single one of his promises. For those of you who may not remember, before Israel went down into Egypt, God gave the patriarchs covenant promises that their descendants would be in a land for 400 years, and after that, they would then be delivered. God fulfilled all of his promises that he gave to the patriarchs, graciously delivering his people out of Egypt. Pharaoh, however, instead of responding to the um, the uh, signs that were wrought against him, he instead tightened his grasp. At this time in the history of the world, Egypt was what you would consider to be the world power of their era and their region. They had chariots, which uh, would be, I guess, the modern day equivalent would be the nuclear warheads uh, of a major nation state. They had uh, archers, they had footmen, they had surrounding territories, a wonderful river system. They were, for all intents and, and purposes, they were the major power in the earth that day. And so God, as he is pulling his people out of Egypt, wrought 10 great signs against Pharaoh and against Egypt, destroying the powers that they exalted in. One of the things that's easy for us to miss in the 10 plagues is that the destruction of the Nile and the, the dismantling of various things, the crops, these all seem like wonderful signs from heaven, but we miss, in, in many times, we miss the economic and geopolitical import of what God is doing. Egypt boasted in their Nile. They celebrated and praised the fields of Egypt as they were the fertile reason why Egypt had so much trade and power. And through the plagues, God was humbling the entire state. He was destroying that entire nation. And God, as it says in Deuteronomy 26, led his people out with a mighty hand and outstretched arms. And this idea that God is doing something through these signs to bring his people out is that he was expelling grace upon them. He was pouring grace upon his people as he not only destroyed those who held them captive, he also displayed his power. And so as Paul is responding to this psalm about the power of God being displayed in that day, but they did not respond, we must understand this history. Psalm 78, in spite of all this, in spite of seeing 10 great plagues, the entire Nile, which they celebrated as the reason for their success, turning to blood, in spite of all of that, they still sinned. It's easy for us to read, in spite of this, they all sinned, they still sinned, and miss what that word all means. Ten amazing signs, which could never be done by a mere human. These were, uh, these were otherworldly, transcendental powers. Something that even today we could only imagine with the greatest of cinemas. Therefore, God made their days vanish like a breath. Despite the great power that was displayed against Egypt, Israel did not cling to their God. 
That power which was displayed against Egypt and to demonstrate the power and holiness of God, Israel was not transformed by that powerful display. Though they had been delivered from Egypt, their souls were still wayward. There's a very common phrase that preachers like to use. You can take Israel out of Egypt, but it took a long time to get Egypt out of Israel. That was the point of the wilderness. God was taking them through a time of testing to see whether or not they would obey. During their time in the wilderness, they neither trusted in God, nor sought him, nor clinged to him, but craved after fleshly pleasures. They demanded over and over again food and drink. Now, it's interesting that God takes exception with this, and from this understanding, I I have learned one thing. It is right to need food and drink. It is wrong to demand food and drink and to begrudge God for not providing it at the right time. Israel, in many ways, was like a small child. Verse 34, when he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. Why did God do this? God used the most severe means, excuse me, the least severe means to accomplish the greatest amount of transformation. Look what takes place after he slays some of them, not all of them. Verse 35, then they remembered that God was their rock, the most high, their redeemer. The psalmist in this psalm is referring to the time where Moses struck the the rock and the rock was broke in a sense. It was broken in a symbol and it poured forth water so that the people could drink. And we know, of course, that that was a shadow and symbol of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, even though they had seen 10 signs and dozens of signs in the wilderness, they only repented for a time. Later during the time of Judges, we will see this exact same pattern take place. God will take his people into a small measure of victory into the promised land. They will honor him and serve him for a generation and then immediately turn and serve the gods of the surrounding nations. They will allow those who are near them to begin to influence them. As I said earlier, Israel at this time is somewhat like an immature child. Those of you who are parents, you know that At times, when your children are young, they ask for food, and at other times, they demand food, and they throw a temper tantrum. And this isn't just my analogy. The scriptures actually talk about Israel as being a small child, and God takes great pain in Israel's rebellion against him, and nevertheless, in Hosea, the prophet records that the father heart of God says about Israel that he cannot give them up even though they have spurned him and and wounded his heart and rejected his grace and despised his timing and sovereign hand, God the Father does not want to throw away or cast away Israel forever. Nevertheless, in verse 36 we read, but they flattered him with their mouths, they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him, they were not faithful to his covenant. Though God had fulfilled all of his covenant promises, and though at that very time where they were receiving additional promises uh, to, to come into this promised land, at that very moment, they continued rebelling. I believe it's no coincidence in the recording of the giving of the Ten Commandments that we hear Moses receive the commandments 
of which it is said the beginning is to not have another God other than Yahweh, and immediately we hear that they've already broken the commandments. It wasn't an issue of timing. The scriptures are telling us no one can keep the commandments. Even before the dispensation of the commandments, the giving of the commandments, they had already broken them because the commandments are known by all. Nevertheless, even though at this time they were in full rebellion against God, both in the wilderness and in the land, God always restrained his righteous anger. Whenever we see through the scriptures brief outbreaks of the anger of God and the wrath of God against sinners consuming some, we understand the scriptures to be telling us this, that God uses the least severe means to accomplish the greatest amount of transformation. That in God's sovereignty, he knows how to communicate to his people so that they will see their need for something much greater than just signs and wonders against, Israel, against Egypt and against the surrounding nations. They don't need God's power to be displayed in the heavens. They need God's power to be displayed in their hearts. That is what this reading is trying to get to us. The scriptures throughout the entire course and scope of the scriptures teach that not only Israel went astray, but actually all people everywhere have gone astray in their hearts. When we read about Israel going astray after the deliverance from Egypt, we must not read that as a specific sin of that nation, but rather that in a very real way, all people everywhere have sinned. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I like to read that verse in this way. I think it is no mistranslation to say all people have sinned and fallen short of glorifying God. They have not rightly understood who God is and who they are and, the, and what the created world around them is, and therefore they have not glorified him and are therefore idolaters. They are, they are celebrating and worshiping and loving other things. People have followed idols of their own making, bowing down to other creatures, worshiping rocks and minerals, engaging in deceits, jealousies, angers, sexual immorality, struggle for power, political corruption, Everywhere throughout the world, every moment of the day, if you even turn on the news for 10 minutes, you will see the fingerprint of sin on this world. All people everywhere have turned away from glorifying God and they now are seeking to glorify themselves and to delight in other things. I want you to think about the, the process of making a golden idol for just a few minutes. You spend thousands of dollars trading and trying to find dust out of the earth and you put it in a fire and then you take another metal thing because gold is too scarce to make it completely out of gold and then you take that gold and you hammer it onto this other piece of metal and then you bow down before it. And that is what people do in their hearts. Not just with physical idols, but they create little things to glory in and to delight in. And they do not honor the uncreated, eternal, fully glorious God. And they bow down before dust. That is the problem of sin. Is people have fallen short of glorifying God. It is not just Israel that went astray. Indeed, we all have gone astray. 
Desiring, therefore, to show his great mercy, God was pleased to send his son to answer this chief problem. In Romans 8, 3, we hear that he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, he bore a body just like yours and mine. I actually, at this time in my life, being 30 years old, have a unique moment in my lifetime where I realize I'm approaching the number of years that Christ had in his life. It's a wonderful thing to meditate that our Savior, as he came, God incarnate in the flesh, did not take on some mysterious form, but came in a way that we could recognize and experience. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, not being sinful himself, for this purpose, to be an offering for sin. Christ is he of whom it was foretold by the angel Gabriel as, she, as he announced to his mother, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That as Jesus Christ became that offering for sin, he himself was transformed to be a sin offering that would fully satisfy the righteous wrath of God against guilt and sin. The point is that Jesus Christ did not make it possible. The angel Gabriel did not say, Jesus Christ will open up a means by which his people could be saved. Jesus Christ will be named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will accomplish it. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, the next letter that Paul writes to this same Corinthian church, he says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That through Jesus Christ, God was acting so that his people could be brought out of the world and into real fellowship with himself. Amazingly, Not only has God desired that his son be an answer for the problem of sin, but beyond that, much more glorious than that, is this, that he has so condescended and so humbled himself that he has desired that the preaching of the cross of Christ would be the means by which that that effect of salvation would be communicated to his people. That Jesus Christ, as he was crucified on the cross, accomplished salvation, but then through the preaching of God's word, that accomplished salvation would now become applied salvation. That through the preaching of God's word, souls would hear a promise of pardon. They would trust in what is being said by God through his ministers, and then they would receive the gift of what Christ purchased. It's very common that we use the analogy of Christmas morning. And in fact, what a good tradition we have in Christmas. Um, when you wake up on Christmas morning, especially if you were a child, you probably would run down to your living room and there would be presents there. But uh, unless you open the present, you don't really have it. Amen? It first says, you know, from dad to, you know, Jill. And and until Jill opens the package, she does not really have that present, right? Because it says from dad to Jill. The act of opening the present is the reception of the gift. And God has so wonderfully given his people a great means of salvation, not only in the cross of Christ, but through the word of God being proclaimed. I want you to look closely at the words that Paul uses. He says, for the word of the cross, not just the cross, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, you could, you could re-say, the word of the cross is the power of God. 
That there is something that the Holy Spirit does through the announcement of God's word as he applies his word to his people. The reason that God did this was to demolish the wisdom of the world and to be seen as totally glorious. If God designed that the salvation which Christ accomplished would come to his people through their own seeking of him, then in some part they would receive the glory, right? If I'm responsible even in a small way of my own salvation, of becoming saved, then I can't give all glory to God. I have a little bit for myself, But rather, God was doing this so that he would not only show his son, but that through the showing of his son in the preaching of God's word, that he would be demonstrated as glorious. Verse 19, Paul continues, the reason that God has given the word of the cross to be the power of God was this, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Because this sentence of condemnation rests on the heart of all men throughout the world, they have devised schemes by which they would appease their own conscience. This so-called worldly wisdom appears in various ways as certain religious systems, philosophies, new age practices, even self-improvement teachings. As I was traveling back to Dayton this last Friday, I went through a number of different bookstores in the airports, and you know what they put on the front of the bookstore? They put all the self-help books. Why? Because people traveling through airports are looking around at all the other people and they're noticing something, maybe only subconsciously, that there are great problems in the earth. I know that's my experience as I was traveling. I felt an overwhelming burden to, to befriend and try to communicate to those around me a little bit about Jesus Christ. This is the point that Paul is getting at, is he's saying that there are worldly wisdoms in the world. There are wisdoms, so-called wisdoms, not true wisdoms, false wisdoms, by which men have tried to appease their consciences, and they have crafted various schemes. In fact, it's, it's very clear when you look at, especially if you do a major religious uh, Uh, survey, if you look at the teachings of all religions, no other religion save for Christianity has a sense of grace that is freely received by trust in promises. Every other system is a self-help system. When you consider Buddhism, the ultimate goal of Buddhism is to work through meditation, through, through thinking, to detach from things which compel you to act in the world, to, to not indulge in certain foods because they will create in you a hunger for good food. Don't be trapped by your family and the needs of your children or a spouse. You need to detach to obtain nirvana in which you will be unified with the, the universe. You'll attain a form of salvation. If you look at Judaism or Islam, Islam means to submit to Allah. 
in Christianity, we do indeed submit to God's law, but we do so having been transformed by him into those who are capable of submitting to God's law and those who by the Holy Spirit even can submit to God's law. But Christianity is not submission. Christianity is trust in the promises of God. That's what the Christian faith is. And so God has desired to demolish the so-called wisdom, which is a religious system based on man's effort. Therefore, he has used one chief way. He has used the means of the preaching of God's word. Unless you, unless you hear me incorrectly, I do not mean the sort of preaching that we're doing in Sunday worship alone although it is vital and it is important. I mean the sort of announcement of the gospel that is the business of all good Christians. Verse 18, excuse me, verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. I want you to look closely at this parallelism. The Jews, why do they want signs? Because their history was wrapped up in God doing signs. In the Old Covenant, he would display his power. He would cause various supernatural things to take place. And therefore, for the Jews to receive a word of God or to receive a teaching from God, they must have accompanying signs. However, the Greeks seek wisdom. If you've ever taken an intro to philosophy course, you know that the Greeks loved wisdom because they, like all men throughout the world, have desired to seek harmony, to assuage their guilt, to solve the problem of sin through the mind and through loving wisdom, philosophy, the love of wisdom. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, and God answers both of them by preaching Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because the cross is an anti-sign. Think about what took place in the, ten, in the giving of the 10 plagues. God destroyed that nation and brought his people up gloriously. Then imagine what took place in the wilderness. Blessing. God brought food. God brought water. When they enter into the promised land, it was a land that brought forth fruit for them that they didn't have to harvest. They, it, everything was just blessing, blessing, blessing. And at the cross of Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, receives nothing but curse. It is a stumbling block to them because they cannot understand. If you were with us at our other building a few weeks ago, John Gray preached on John 17. And the prayer that Jesus offers in that, uh, in that garden was that he would be glorified with the glory that he had before the foundation of the earth. That as Jesus Christ is going to the cross, that is when the glory of God is on display. That's why it's a stumbling block to the Jews. They cannot understand how could God be blessing anything through a cross? How could God do anything great through the death of an innocent man? It does not register with their system Likewise, to the Gentiles, how can trust in something that happened to someone else do anything for me? Because for the Greeks, philosophy is all about changing one's mind and soul. It's about coming to a different realization of the world. Verse 24, but to those who are called both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
What an amazing answer to man's need. God knows what people in the earth need, both Jews and Greeks, those who are Jewish and Gentiles, and he is able to save both. Continuing in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The weakest act in the history of the world, the offering up of Jesus Christ's life as he expresses to his father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The yielding of the Lord Jesus Christ as he atoned for sin and bore the wrath of sinners completely. The weakest, most humiliating thing that has ever taken place is the only strong action in history. And therefore, Paul can rightly say, slightly equivocating, using his words like somewhat like jokes or somewhat like toys, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Because what happened at the cross wasn't weak in any sense of the word. It was powerful. It was transforming. What God has, has done throughout the world by calling his people to himself, he also did in a very small microcosm or a little micro picture in the Corinthian church. Paul has just described what God has done through Christ in the cross, and now he brings this idea home to his hearers. He applies this to the Corinthian church, and he wants them to remember how they were called to Christ. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is exactly what we consider to be the cross of Christ. That which is weak in the eyes of men and powerless in the eyes of men. And then and only then, God is able to work. Only when people can see that they have no strength in themselves, that they have no power in themselves, are they able to hear the message of salvation. In reminding them of their low worldly estate, Paul highlights that these people were not chosen by God because of their own greatness. It's interesting to me that historically Christianity throughout the, throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, in every culture has always spread first among those who are poor, among those who are afflicted with sickness, those who are social outcasts, those who are, who are regarded as being nothing by the important people around the world. The reason for this is not because being sick or poor necessarily makes one more holy or more ready to receive the gospel, but rather because those people are not often deluded by the pride and prestige of life. Those who don't occupy positions of power are very easy, uh, it's very easy often for them to be willing to let go of the claim on power and the claim on place and the claim on prestige. Paul says that these Corinthians were lowly people. Now this may cut our egos, but it is a cutting worth doing because it's true. In fact, it is only those who are in Jesus Christ who can even begin to admit that they're not special. What a freeing thing to not have the burden of having to be special in the earth. When I think about my life and I I think about how I will soon, uh, in just a few decades, pass on and my name will be forgotten and probably the name of my children will be forgotten, it is a wonderful, freeing gift. 
The reason being is the name that has to be known throughout time is known, and it's Jesus Christ. Our names can fade. His name will never fade. The point is, the cross of Christ is the grand announcement to sinners that they can be freed from not only needing to find their way to God and and obtain favor with him somehow, but the need to be in power and in places of success. Verse 30, Paul continues. He says, one of the most amazing, very clear verses of the transformation that God does for sinners is this. Because of him, that is God, because of God you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. How did Christ become to us wisdom from God? He did not become wisdom from God at the cross, No, indeed, Christ was always the manifold wisdom of God. He was a grand expression of the work of God. But in the announcement of God's promises, Christ goes from our consideration being folly to wisdom. He did not become wisdom from God on the cross. No, but through the preaching of God's word, the Holy Spirit renews minds so that they would be able to see the glory of what takes place on the cross and the necessity of the cross for them. Not just God's power being displayed externally, but God's power being applied internally to change hearts. Verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now this may shock some of you, but you did not come to Jesus Christ, according to this verse, because of yourself. You came, in verse 30 it says, because of him, that God was doing something in you. And he did it through his people, and he did it through his spirit. The point is this, that he did this so that they would boast in the Lord and not in themselves. One of the ways that we can boast in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the most applicable ways, is to boldly declare what he has done for us. You see, the preaching of the gospel which calls others to clean up their life to come to Christ or to work really hard to obtain faith does not at all glorify God. And indeed, it's not a message which can be easily received. The the reception that is necessary comes from preaching the word of God in clarity on this specific point, that God is the one who can save you. You do not need to obtain cleanliness to come to God, but that through Jesus Christ, he has so perfectly satisfied the wrath which was against your sin and guilt, and because of that, you can trust that he will free you from that forever. One of the most powerful ways to share your faith is not only to tell the historic truth about the cross of Christ, but to also share your story about how you came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that, and as you do that, you must do it according to verse 30, that because of God, I am in Christ Jesus. The sort of testimony which boasts in self and does not exalt the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in transforming us does not bring glory to God, but instead actually brings glory in a small way to ourselves. By giving glory to God as you share what he has done, he may be so pleased as to work through you with your neighbors. I'm very convinced that this is true, not only from my uh, not only from the plain reading of scriptures, but also from my own experience. 
And if you ever are honest with yourself, you will begin to realize this, that you were not seeking after God, but that in his grace, someone announced to you the message of forgiveness. Someone shared with you an aspect of the gospel. And as you were being drawn by the Holy Spirit, then you began to believe. That is the gospel applied. So because God has chosen us as his people, let us gloriously boast in Jesus Christ. For only through him and in him, we freely have redemption. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word as it is proclaimed. We ask that you would transform us into a people who not only proclaim your word on Sunday mornings, but that as as we meet, that you would, by your spirit, move through us to reach those around us. We pray, Lord, for this neighborhood of Eastmont in the city of Dayton, that you would reach people through our church. We also ask, Lord, that you would help us to see the cross of Christ as the wisdom and power which it truly is, and not as something small and low and to be despised. In Jesus' name, amen.